Ah, Henry, good to see you finally come back. This had better be good, Marcus. I've gotten very used to relaxing and recording my memoirs. Sitting around doing very little as usual, then. It's not that long since you gained immortality from the Holy Grail anyway. Where did Indy get off to? Last I heard, he was in New Jersey. Said there was something happening at Grover's Mill. Radio broadcast about aliens or something. Aliens? You wouldn't catch me touching anything about them with a barge pole. Marcus, you didn't get me here to chat about my son. Show me what you found. Yes, of course. Uh, This came in yesterday and we've been thawing it all night. Uh, The Russians found it near the Mongolian border. Shipped it to us, saying it was more our line. It looks like a giant egg. Yes, but look look closely at the inscription. The Jodcast? Well, I've never heard of it. No, nor I. Uh, Perhaps this button here will give us some sort of idea. The Jodcast, the neatest thing since digital watches. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Neil Young. The Jodcast, September 2009 edition. So, hello and welcome to the September edition of the Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe and joining me this time is Neil Young. Hi, Neil. Hello, everybody. And we've had our, our summer holiday break. Um, actually, I don't think any of us were on holiday. No. We've all been just too busy with things to produce a Jodcast, so we had a, an episode off, as we said at the le- end of the last episode. But we're back, and we have a few things coming up on the show this time. We'll have an interview about anomalous emission from Professor Rod Davis. But before that, we have the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month. Confirmation of the discovery of an amino acid in cometary dust. New ways to date the formation of the solar system. And stellar populations not as simple as once thought. In 2004, the Stardust spacecraft flew past the comet Vilt 2, passing through the dense gas and dust surrounding the nucleus on January the 2nd. Using a special collector containing a grid of aerogel, the probe sampled the particles in the comet's tail, later returning them to Earth in a capsule which parachuted back into the Earth's atmosphere on January the 15th, 2006. Over the last three years, scientists around the world have been analysing the particles collected in the aerogel samples to investigate the chemical composition of the comet. Preliminary results published in the journal Science in December 2006 showed the presence of various organic compounds in the returned samples. While the presence of some of these compounds may have been due to contamination of the aerogel during manufacture of the spacecraft, a comparison analysis of flight spares, aerogel samples which were manufactured at the same time and in the same way but never flown, showed a lower abundance of these chemicals, indicating that at least some of the organic material came from the cometary debris. One such chemical was the amino acid glycine. Preliminary results showed that it was present in some samples, but were not conclusive enough to show that it came from the comet rather than from contamination. New results presented at a meeting of the American Chemical Society in Washington, D.C. during August. A team have determined that the amino acid was present in cometary material collected by the Stardust mission. Glycine is an amino acid used by living organisms to make proteins, and one of the fundamental building blocks of life as we know it. 
so finding this sort of molecule in space could have implications for the abundance of life in the universe. Led by Jamie L. Siller at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, the team conducted isotopic analysis of the samples to try and determine the origin of the chemical. Organic compounds contain carbon atoms, but not all carbon is the same. Different isotopes exist with the same number of protons, but different numbers of neutrons, giving the carbon atoms slightly different weights. Carbon-12 has six protons and six neutrons in its nucleus, while carbon-13 has an extra neutron and is slightly heavier. Glycine molecules from Earth contain less carbon-13 than those from space, so measuring the relative amounts of each isotope in a sample can distinguish between glycine from Earth-based contaminants and glycine from comet debris. As molecules of gas pass through the aerogel, some of them stuck to the aluminium foil lining the sides of the tiny chambers that hold the aerogel in the collection grid. The team analysed traces of material from the foil, and had to refine their equipment to make it accurate and sensitive enough to analyse such tiny samples. Their results show that the glycine returned by Stardust has an extraterrestrial carbon isotope signature containing more carbon-13 than samples from Earth, and ruling out contamination. The results have been accepted for publication in the journal Meteoritics and Planetary Science. The problem of determining the sequence of events during the formation of the early solar system is one that requires knowledge of the precise timescales for the physical and chemical processes occurring in the accretion disk. In a similar way to the carbon dating of artefacts here on Earth, there are processes which can be used to date events in the early solar system. One such commonly used technique relies on radioactive decay process of aluminium. Stable aluminium atoms have an atomic mass of 27, but one isotope, aluminium-26, is relatively short-lived, decaying to magnesium-26 with a half-life of 730,000 years. Compared to the age of the solar system, some 5 billion years, this is a relatively short time period, so all of the original aluminium-26 in the early solar system must now have decayed. The origin of the aluminium-26 is not certain. It may be that it was present in the cloud from the start, created in a nearby supernova explosion, or generated within the solar system itself. Careful analysis of the isotopic composition of meteorite samples can yield a sequence of events, but the accuracy of this method relies on the assumption that the original aluminium-26 was evenly distributed around the solar system. If it was generated by a source outside the solar system, then it may not have been well mixed with the rest of the material in the nebula, resulting in unreliable age estimates. In research published in Science on August the 21st, Johann Villeneuve and colleagues at Nancy University in France describe new techniques they have developed which allow very precise measurements of magnesium isotopes. Comparing samples from different objects, the researchers show that the Earth and several components of primitive chondritic meteorites all lie on the same evolutionary line. Their analysis confirms that the ratio of radioactive aluminium-26 to stable aluminium-27 was uniform in the early solar system, confirming that this process is a reliable chronometer of events at that time. Stars come in a variety of sizes. Many are of a similar size to our own Sun, but there are plenty of stars which are much, much larger. For every star that is 20 times the mass of our Sun, there should be roughly 500 stars with the Sun's mass or less. The trouble with studying stellar populations, however, is that the brighter stars often outshine their dimmer companions, making it hard to determine how many stars of each type there are in a given star cluster or galaxy.
For some time the standard assumption has been that there is a simple function relating how many stars of each type are present in a given cluster. This relationship is known as the stellar initial mass function. The idea is that if the population of large stars is measured, then this relationship can tell you about the rest of the stellar population, the dimmer stars that can't be seen directly. But a recent study, published in the Astrophysical Journal, has thrown doubt on this long-held and widely used assumption. This is not the first such study, but these new results provide extra information which adds to the picture. Led by Gerhard Muhr at Johns Hopkins University, the researchers used a combination of optical images from telescopes at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile and ultraviolet observations from the GALAX satellite to show that many galaxies do not form a lot of massive stars, yet still have plenty of lower-mass counterparts. The ultraviolet images are sensitive to somewhat small stars, three or more times more massive than the Sun, while the filtered optical images are only sensitive to the largest stars, with twenty or more times the mass of the Sun. The problem is particularly severe in more diffuse, faint galaxies. The initial mass function would predict a certain mass for the stellar content of the galaxy, based on the light visible from the larger stars. But these new results show that there may be far more faint stars in such galaxies than was previously thought. And finally, August the 25th saw the 400th anniversary of the day when Galileo Galilei first showed his improved telescope design to government officials in Venice. Although he did not invent the telescope, he heard of the idea and improved upon it, showing it to the Senate as a means of strategic advantage in battle, allowing their armies to see distant enemy ships long before they reached shore. It was still some months before he turned the device to the heavens and made his famous drawings of the planet Saturn. Telescopes have come a long way in the intervening years. August also saw the opening of the world's largest telescope, the Grand Telescopio Canarius, or GTC, located on La Palma in the Canary Islands. With a 10.4-metre mirror, made up of 36 hexagonal segments, the GTC is larger than any other current ground-based optical telescope. Originally scheduled to open in 2003, the project has taken somewhat longer than expected, but it may provide a useful testbed for technologies planned for the next generation of optical telescopes with mirrors 25 metres and more in diameter. Thanks for that, Megan. And recently there have been quite a few developments in terms of launches and things to do with NASA. And Neil, you've been following recent events? Yes, I have. Um, there's been quite a bit of activity in South Korea. Um, so that they got their own space program now? They have indeed. It's the, they've now joined the 10 countries which are capable of launching from their own soil, from their own country. So that's places like the United States, Russia, mm-hmm. India... You know, places Europe. in Europe, yeah. Unfortunately, Great Britain isn't actually part of that because we haven't really launched anything from the UK soil yet. We use... Uh, oh, there was the, the fantastic um, Top Gear episode where they tried to launch uh, a Morris Minor, but that doesn't really count. So, yeah, South Korea has recently launched um, a rocket to put a, a satellite into orbit. It's been marked as a uh, partial success, whereas he actually got the rocket into outer space, but the, uh, the satellite didn't actually reach um, a proper orbit, and I think... Communication's been lost. Ah, okay, so it nearly got there, but Almost, just failed yeah. at the, the last moment. Um, among other things as well, um, NASA has a few press releases about the uh, the proposed Discovery launch uh, shuttle mission, um, which is the 30th maintenance operation to service the uh, International Space Station. So as we record this, um, 
the discovery launch is scheduled for um, Friday at 2 p.m. I think. Yeah, I think we've already they've already tried two attempts, haven't they? Yeah, so there's one on Tuesday, and there's one supposed to be on Wednesday as well today, but unfortunately neither of those uh, could go through due to I think a hydrogen failure. Yeah, there's some a problem with the valve, thing. I think, that they're looking into. Mm-hmm. So it's currently scheduled for Friday, as you say. And among more interesting news, this week marks the 400th anniversary of the first use of a telescope by Galileo Galilei uh, in 1609. So um, Galileo used a, an existing design to make a telescope of magnification of three to view stars in the night sky, which he later used to develop uh, a telescope with magnification of 30, which he used in 1610 to observe the Galilean satellites. Um, so these are the moons of Jupiter, so Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto. Yeah, they're the four biggest ones and easiest to spot if you have your own telescope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely well worth it. In fact, coming up a bit later in the year, on October the 22nd to 24th, there's a big international event called Galilean Nights, where the International Year of Astronomy is trying to encourage people to go out and do some sidewalk observing and go and look at the Galilean moons, amongst other things, including the moon, our own moon. And as you said there, Neil, this is the anniversary about now, and Google recently just changed their logo on their homepage to make it themed like a Galileo telescope, which is quite nice. Yeah, that sounds quite good, actually, yeah. And it's nice to see them taking part in the International Year of Astronomy. Now, we recently talked to Professor Rod Davis from the Jodlebank Centre for Astrophysics about a peculiar observation that's been called anomalous emission. Welcome to the Jodcast, Rod. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. And you've got a really exciting story about science happening, science in action, and a a discovery that's been made in data and still people are looking at. Would you like to start off by explaining what's been found? We have found in radio astronomy in in the last years is built on an understanding that was quite well established, we thought, of what the origin of radio waves was. Uh, There are normally thought to be two different components of of the radio emission, one of which was what we call free-free emission, which comes from hot ionized gas, and the other was synchrotron emission, which comes from high-energy, relativistic energy, electrons spiraling in magnetic fields. And we thought this whole subject of the origin was done and dusted, but new things have began to appear on the horizon in the 1990s, the early 1990s, some 15 years ago now it is, something strange happened in the cosmic microwave background experiments when we were looking for the early signs of structure appearing in in the universe. We found that there were components there that were, in fact, unexplained by the, the normal free-free or Mm. the synchrotron processes. And uh, this was work that was done at Tenerife in collaboration with our Spanish colleagues because our Jodrell Bank work on the cosmic microwave background in Tenerife really got the Spanish involved in in the CMB work as well as providing a marvellous collaboration on an extremely good site uh, on the ridge on the on the top of the Tenerife Island. So that's on the top of Mount Tidy? This was actually on uh, Izania, which is uh, not quite the the top, you're quite right. That's that's another mile above us. (laughs) And uh, we don't go up there because out of it is rather sulfurous fumes which 
corrode everything that that happens. So why do you go up to to that height rather than do it in a field in Cheshire? Yes. Well, we tried doing it in the field in Cheshire, and it worked for one winter only. And the reason is that we have a little too much atmosphere or water vapor in the atmosphere at, at uh, in Manchester, and that water vapor in the atmosphere is. Uh, Irregular, you know, it forms clouds, but substructures on all scales, and that gets awfully confused with the microwave background because that happens on many scales. So we need to get above the atmosphere, and it turns out that the Tenerife site uh, is up at eight and a half thousand feet above sea level, and you're above the inversion layer uh, in the atmosphere, which means that you're above the cloud tops. And it's marvellous up there, and in an afternoon you can look down and see that the people down on the beach must be under the cloud, but we're above it up there, and uh, that makes very good observing, and it's one of the best sites in the world for observing the cosmic microwave background. Anyway, this clue uh, that came uh, in the early 1990s was that this extra emission that we were getting, the extra radio waves that we were getting, were in fact correlated with the dust emission um, in the in the galaxy. So somehow or another, it was the dust that seemed to be responsible. So they they seem to be at the same parts yeah, of the same sky. Same parts of the sky and the structures that we know and love. Uh, regions like the duck in the around the, the North Celestial Pole. There's a region there that looks like uh, the the children's duck in a bath. <laughs> and that that thing has got exactly the same shape in in our radio, uh, this new uh, type of emission, as it is in the dust, which you see in the far infrared. Right. So that was one of the points that uh, sort of helped tie in the uh, relationship with the dust. And the other important thing was a, a paper that was published by Drain and Lazarian, and that predicted an emission from dust, but not ordinary dust in, in the interstellar medium, the medium between the stars, but very small grains. And if they're small enough, they will spin on their own axes, and there's a little bit of sort of offset charge, so that they're effectively spinning charges in, in space, and that is ideal for generating radio waves. That's how we generate radio waves and radio transmitters and so on. But these are irregular. And so, how how small is a small grain? That these grains are in mass a, a few uh, tens of hydrogen masses or a few okay, carbons. So, so they they are the very very small. They are extremely small and. Some of the structures may even be large molecules, large, partly regular molecules. Some of them are called polyaromatic hydrocarbons, and these are sort of great chains and, and, and structures with carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen in them. And they, they add up to something like 30 or 50 uh, carbon atoms, for example, within them. And these will spin at frequencies of tens of gigahertz. In other words, these dust grains are going around at about 10 billion times a second. Now, we don't sit there and count them. <laughs> if we put our radio telescope in front, we actually find that the spectrum that we get is peaked in in the range of a few tens of gigahertz, we call them, tens of billions of uh, uh, cycles per second is, is the radio emission. 
And this was the prediction of Drain and Lazarian. This was a peak spectrum, which was quite different in nature from the spectrum of the free-free or the synchrotron that we'd normally been uh, accustomed to in radio astronomy. Maybe we should explain exactly what a peak spectrum means. Yes, this is important, that uh, when you plot the strength of the signals that you get from the spinning dust as a function of frequency, you'll find there's a peak at a certain frequency in, in the spectrum. It rises from around about 10 gigahertz, which is a wavelength of 3 centimeters, through and peaks at about 30 gigahertz, a wavelength of 1 centimeter, and drops again once you get to, say, 100 gigahertz, and it's more or less uh, undetected there. And is that just because they're more likely to rotate at a particular frequency? They, um, the whole physics of the emission sort of gives you a peak, and it's maybe a little complex to go into it here, but at the high frequency end, uh, the photons, the energy of the radio is high, and it radiates at a price. It slows down. It has to get its energy from somewhere. So the higher frequencies are weaker because they, the spinning particles don't last long there, whereas they keep going more. And the low frequency end, it is just the the spectrum of a uh, an oscillating object falls at the low frequency. So we've got a low frequency cutoff and a high frequency cutoff, and so you get more the peak of... seems to be uh, around about in the in the in this range. So they're actually it's it's a most interesting but quite simple concept in a way that uh, a, a particle will spin under the influence of radiation uh, hitting it um, so that uh, it will spin and we say that the, the it, its energy has, is the moment of an inertia times the spin frequency squared and uh, if you make the this moment of inertia small enough the size small enough it spins faster it, it's mm. purely and simply that the, the the dancer bringing in the arms, as it were, and spinning faster when they make themselves thinner than yeah. the pirouette uh, technique. So it's the same sort of thing happening out there with these small dust grains. And so that prediction is really, in some sense, common sense, and you wonder why it hasn't been predicted before. And it had. <laughs> Bill Erickson, one of our pioneer radio astronomers out in Texas, who, who built himself a, a, a 200 megahertz array way back 40 years ago, uh, was actually looking for this at a much lower frequency. He, his sums didn't enable him to come up with the, the right answers. But the idea was, it, it's a 40-year-old uh, idea, but we've been able to prove now that it works and that the sort of dust particles are out there. You can actually get these, well, the PAH is the polyaromatic hydrocarbons, now you can see their spectra in the near-infrared, the new Spitzer uh, spacecraft has been measuring these over the last uh, four or five years. And so you can see that the PAHs are there as one possibility, but there are other types of small grain that could also do this, and they're also seen in the in the dust spectrum. So the whole story is beginning to tie together now, uh, and the critical part really has been this measurement of the 
uh, of the peak spectrum. It's just characteristic of spinning dust, and it's quite different from the from the other techniques. We haven't convinced the whole world yet that the, this is the case. Our uh, American competitors in some of our CMB work have a, a story where they think that this may be an, another sort of synchrotron emission that peaks, and you can make a peak, but it's large, much broader than the than the narrow peak that we have with the, with the spinning dust. And synchrotron was from the electron spiral. This is from electrons, fields. relativistic electrons plowing into dust clouds. Okay. Uh, with very high energy and much higher energy than we know about. We haven't seen them or high magnetic fields, higher. It, it, it's, it's extreme. I'm showing my bias here, of course, <laughs> but, but it is rather an extreme picture. But we're, we're hoping we can clarify this with the, with the Planck satellite, which is now up and the, the first tests are showing it's going extremely well. Uh, and so we're looking forward in the next year or two to actually clarifying the picture because Planck will tell us not only about this anomalous emission at the low frequencies, but it'll actually give us data at the higher frequencies that come from the dust. The dust spectrum will be better defined so that we can run that down into our part of the spectrum and uh, clarify the anomalous emission. So this is a quite exciting time at the moment as we start powering up uh, Planck to make these measurements because it beautifully covers the range over which this spinning dust operates and spinning dust is the major foreground to the cosmic microwave background at uh, frequencies of a few tens of gigahertz up to maybe a hundred gigahertz. Hmm. So it's important for cosmic microwave background studies and the origin of the universe uh, as well as being an interesting topic of its own. So we're interested in both sides, the uh, the, the dust physics and on the one hand and the cleaned up uh, cosmic microwave background picture on the other. So removing it away so you can see behind. That's right, yes. And this, this anomalous emission has only been found because we've been looking across the whole range of the spectrum. That, that's right. And it's, it's been very closely associated with our search for the first structures in the cosmic microwave background because they are extremely weak and it's only some 15 years ago that they were detected for the first time. And as soon as one got into that detection, you then were always wanting to know how much foreground contributed to the structures that you were seeing. And uh, the free-free and the synchrotron couldn't explain it all, and you had to bring in this dust-correlated component. And so we're now in a much clearer and cleaner picture, and in getting rid of these foregrounds so that we can reveal the full beauty and uh, and science from the cosmic microwave background. That's a great example of science that you go looking for an answer to one question and end up discovering a completely different question that you it, hadn't it, expected. It is. It, it is, and that's one of the interesting things of a life in science, and I've seen that a, a number of times over my my career, and it's it's been great to be associated with this one. Uh, towards the end of one's career, if there is an end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much, Rod, for joining us and telling us about anomalous emission. Indeed, and it's been a pleasure to do it, and I hope we haven't uh, confused people too much by it, but it is a fascinating story, I must say. So, thanks for that, Stuart. And as we previously mentioned, we have the uh, November Live edition coming up on the 21st. A special Jodcast Live. Special Jodcast Live. It's going to be good. 
Yeah, it is indeed. Um, you're going to be able to meet all the presenters. We've still got some places available, so if you want to register your interest, um, preferably do this via jodcast.net. Now, one of the people who hopefully you'll meet at the Jodcast Live is Ian Morrison, and here he is to tell us what's in the night sky for September. Well, the nights are drawing in. Better for us astronomers, I think. What can we see in September? Quite an interesting month, in fact. Well, we see for quite a long time in the southwest the stars that make up the constellations of Cygnus the Swan, Lyra the Lyre, and Aquila the Eagle, with their bright stars Deneb, Vega, and Altair. I've talked about these quite a bit in the last few months, so if you want to learn more about those, just go back and click on an earlier Jodcast. So let's concentrate a bit on the stars that are now becoming visible sort of towards the southeast in the early evening and round to the south late on. Well, perhaps pride of place goes to Pegasus, the winged horse, with the square of Pegasus fairly high in the sky. Pegasus, you might know, is upside down, so the mane and the head of Pegasus drops down and round and curves up to the right from the lower right star the square of Pegasus. If you start at the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, it's actually Alpha Andromedae, so it's not actually in Pegasus at all. You curve up to the left one bright star, curve a bit more to a second one, which is in fact Beta Andromedae. At that point, turn sharp right. Move one reasonably bright star, not quite so distant away. And then if you carry on by just the same amount, with binoculars on a clear night, and even with your unaided eye, if it's very clear, you should see a fuzzy glow. And what you'll be seeing is the central part of the wonderful galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, M31. And it's perhaps the furthest that most people can see with their unaided eyes. It lies at about 2.5 million light years away. So you're looking back into time, 2.5 million years. Another way to find Andromeda is to start with the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia, which is above and basically above it. If you take the three bright right-hand stars that form a bit of a V, a pointer, they point down roughly towards M31 as well. So that's two ways of finding it. So do try and have a look on a clear night sometime this month. It's a lovely thing to look at. A pair of 8 by 40 or 10 by 50 binoculars on from a dark location can really show it stretching several degrees across, not just the central core, which is what we normally see from a light-polluted location. If you take the central star of Cassiopeia and sort of work leftwards to the next bright star and keep on going, you're going towards the constellation of Perseus. And about halfway between, you come to a rather lovely little group of clusters. It's called the double cluster of Perseus, or in Perseus. And that's a beautiful object in either reasonably powerful binoculars or a small telescope. In fact, you need a small telescope because a big telescope will tend to have too small a field of view to capture both of the clusters together. Down below the bright star Alpha Persei is a star called Algol. It's actually called the Demon Star because it appears to wink. And the reason is it's actually called what's called an eclipsing binary. And every few days... A star comes in front of the brightest star, the companion comes in front of the brightest star, and the brightness drops quite significantly. And you can easily see that happen over a period of a few hours. 
Finally, just below Pegasus, it's not a particularly bright region or region where there are lots of bright stars, but there is the circuit of Pisces, the head of one of the two fishes. And just below that at the moment is, in fact, the planet Uranus, which we'll come back to in the highlights. Down to the lower right of that Pisces circuit is Aquarius, and to the left is Cetus. So, quite a lot to see. And as the lights get longer, if you're prepared to stay up, you have a lovely view of a lot of the sky over perhaps six or seven hours. Okay, well, what about the planets? Well, we'll start with Jupiter, because that's perhaps the most prominent planet, certainly in the evening sky. It's easily visible and dominates the southeastern sky after sunset. Its magnitude is dropping fractionally from about minus 2.8 to minus 2.7. Um, the angular size, 48 arc seconds, pretty much as big as it gets, and that means a small telescope will in principle show quite a bit of detail. But as I've said before, at the present time, Jupiter is rather low in the ecliptic. It never rises much above 25 degrees above the horizon in the south, so the atmosphere does have a slightly debilitating effect. I was actually down in Rio for a big conference a week or so ago, and it was lovely to see uh, Jupiter much higher in the sky. Well, what about Saturn? It's virtually lost in the sun's glare, which is a pity because on September the 4th, its ring system becomes edge-on to the sun and therefore is not illuminated. That's at a time when it's, in the past, certainly people have discovered small satellites close in to Saturn because the glare of the, of the rings wasn't there. Now, it is just, just possible if you get yourself a very good low western horizon and look at about 8 p.m. with binoculars after you've seen the sun set. Don't start looking in that direction until the sun has set and sweep around the horizon not far from where the sun has set, a little bit to the left, then there's a chance you might actually pick up Saturn. But that'll be the last time for a little while when it reappears in the pre-dawn sky. Well, Mercury, that actually passes behind the Sun, we call that inferior conjunction, on the 20th of September. And that means it's not really visible until the very, very end of the month, and then with difficulty, I think. Um, if you have a look on the 30th, just about 600, 0600 BST, you will see it 10 degrees below the planet Venus, but it'll only be just above the horizon, and you'll need binoculars, I think, binoculars, I think, to pick it out. But it is, in principle, visible at the very end of the month. Well, Mars is the other interesting planet. That's becoming more prominent in the morning sky. It rises at about midnight during the month. That stays fairly constant, actually, because of the way it's moving in the sky. It lies in the constellation of Gemini, and at the beginning of the month, it's very close to the open cluster M35, um, which is a nice cluster down towards the bottom of Gemini at the bottom right. Uh, the magnitude is slowly increasing, gets up to plus 0.8, and the angular size goes from about 5.8 to 6.6 .6 arc seconds during the month. This means that towards the end of the month anyway, a small telescope under good seeing conditions might have a reasonable chance of seeing some of the more prominent features such as Certis Major and maybe the polar caps. Now, the Earth is beginning to overtake Mars on what we might say the inside track, so over the next few months it will be getting closer to us and we'll have a better view. 
Well, I've just mentioned Venus, it will be above Mercury at the end of the month. It's now moving towards the far side of the Sun. We see it, in fact, uh, in the pre-dawn sky, so it's getting closer in angle, less easy to see. Um, so we see it best at the beginning of September, and it's in the constellation of Cancer, and just below the Beehive Cluster uh, at the beginning of the month. It j moves down towards Leo during the month, and by the 20th, it's just half a degree above the brightest star in Leo, which is called Regulus. Look like a little double star system, in fact, although they're actually about half a degree apart, a bit more than a typical double. And the small telescope will show a waxing gibbous disk, which drops from 12.5 to about 11 arc seconds as it's moving away from us. Magnitude stays pretty constant. It's minus 3.9 throughout the whole month. OK, well, that's a bit about the planets. What about some of the highlights of the month? Well, there are actually quite a few. Around the new moon, which is on the 18th of September, that's when the skies are darkest, if it's clear, you do have a reasonable chance of finding the planet Uranus and maybe even spotting the asteroid Juno. Uranus is at opposition on September the 17th, about new moon, and has a magnitude of plus 5.7. So in principle, it's just visible with the unaided eye from a very dark location. But I suspect binoculars will make it much easier. If you go to the Night Sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, or just put in Night Sky into Google, you should find it, uh, I have a chart which actually shows its position mid-month. It's moving during the month down and towards the right, towards the star Beta Aquarii. Um, on the 17th also, the asteroid Juno passes just 4 degrees to the lower left of Uranus. And I've given a second chart to show you where that should be. It's very close to a pair of 5th and 6th magnitude stars during that time. I should say that the different planetarium programs do sort of give a slightly different plot for where Juno will be. Uh, I've used um, Stellarium to find out where it is, but others I notice not quite the same. The thing to do is to observe the location on more than one night if you can and see what has moved. Now, it's a slight pity we don't live in North America on August the 2nd and 3rd, so perhaps you could go there for a quick trip. Because there's a chance, which actually is quite rare, of looking at Jupiter and not actually seeing any moons at all. Uh, last month, in fact, we, we, we apparently saw five because there was a star very close by. But this time, at that time, between 4.45 and 6.29 UT, that's when, sadly, Jupiter set here, it will not appear to have its moons. Ganymede and Europa will lie in front of Jupiter, Io will be behind, and Callisto, although not behind, will be in Jupiter's shadow. And that's the last time it will appear moonless until 2019. So I'll bring it back up again in the highlights for that year. I've mentioned before that it's a good month to find the Andromeda Galaxy, and again on the night sky page, you'll find a chart showing you how to find it. On the 12th of September, in the late evening, a crescent moon passes M35. That's the cluster in Gemini I mentioned earlier, um, because Mars is close by. Um, as the moon and the cluster both have apparent angular sizes of half a degree, they'll be comparable in size, and the moon will just skim past the edge of the cluster. You'll certainly need binoculars, and of course there's a problem that the moon will actually produce some glare. So I think it will be a lovely thing to photograph, 
but somewhat tricky. You might have to take a photograph with a long exposure to overexpose the moon, but show the cluster, and then one to expose the moon, in which you wouldn't see the cluster, but combine them together, you could make perhaps a very nice photograph. And finally, um, Neptune. Now, we don't often spot Neptune. It's um, magnitude plus 7.8, so it's fairly faint. You'll need certainly binoculars, perhaps a small telescope. But it's due south around midnight, or has been at the end of last month. It's in Capricornus, towards the south, in the late evening. It's just over 2 degrees above the 2.8 magnitude star Delta Capricorni. So that makes it relatively easy to find. If you put Delta Capricorni at the bottom of the field of view of a pair of binoculars, then Neptune should be sort of towards the top. Uh, you can find Jupiter, sweep with binoculars, um, a few degrees between 4 and 6 to the east to pick up two stars, Delta and Gamma Capricorni, and then you'll find Neptune above. And I've given details and a star chart on the night sky page. So there are a few interesting things to look at, and I wish you luck. What if you're in the Southern Hemisphere? Following a little bit about what you see in the sky, I'll say something about Omega Centauri, which is a rather interesting object, which might be of interest to those of us who live in the north as well. Well, if you look to the north, you see many of the stars, of course, that we see. Cygnus is low in the north, Lyra to its left, Aquila above it, the little constellation Delphinus uh, between Cygnus and Aquila, a little bit to the right. Down to the left is Hercules. And in the northeast, the square of Pegasus, part of which would be visible. So there's a lot there that we've talked about on other times in the Northern Hemisphere. One thing you will see, of course, and I did actually see it from Rio a couple of weeks ago, is that Jupiter, of course, will appear much higher in the sky to you. So that's a good thing. If you look south, of course, you see that lovely vista where the Milky Way is sort of almost vertical, coming from the south-southwest up towards the zenith. Due south, obviously there's a south celestial pole, nothing there, but to the left of them you've got the small Magellanic cloud and below that the large Magellanic cloud. Sweep around with binoculars on a clear night, you should spot them. I've talked about those in detail before, I think even last month. In the plane of the Milky Way, you see about a third of the way up from the horizon, horizontally, Crooks, the Southern Cross. With binoculars or a small telescope, if you look at the highest of those stars, you actually find very close a lovely little cluster called the Jewel Box. That's certainly worth looking out for. Now, above that, we have the constellation of Centaurus. The two brightest stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, are called the Pointers because they point down to Crooks. But this time, take Beta Centauri, the lower of those two, and then basically work your way towards the west, and you'll come to another bright star. If you carry on from Beta Centauri through the next star, and then continue in that direction, you should see something that looks fairly bright, it was once classified as a star, but also somewhat fuzzy. And that's in fact called Omega Centauri, which is nominally called a globular cluster. Omega Centauri was first discovered by Edmund Halley in 1677, who listed it as a nebula. But it actually had been spotted and listed as a star in Ptolemy's catalogue 2,000 years earlier. The English astronomer, 
William Herschel's son, John William Herschel, first recognized it as a globular cluster in the 1830s. It's one of the few globular clusters that can be seen with the naked eye. It's both the brightest and the largest associated with the Milky Way, lying at a distance just under 16,000 light years, and contains something like several million stars. They're very tightly packed in the center, perhaps only 0.1 light years apart from each other, whereas of course our nearest star is 4.2 light years away. It's probably about 12 billion years old. Now, I think there's a lot of speculation to say it isn't really a globular cluster. All the stars in a globular cluster were formed at the same time. But in fact, you find several generations of stars in Omega Centauri. And I think most people now think, or a lot of people think, is actually the core of a dwarf galaxy where the outer parts were stripped off when it came close to the Milky Way. And in fact, last year, some astronomers claimed to have found evidence of an intermediate mass black hole at its center. Essentially, the stars close to the center are whirring around so quickly, you can estimate a mass of what must be a very small object. It does look as though it may well be a supermassive or a massive black hole. So I think our ideas now are changing. We're probably seeing the heart of an old galaxy. Well, do have a look. It's a lovely object to see. Thanks for that, Ian. So, that brings us to listener feedback. And first up is emails. We have an email from Mike Van Voren, who says, Thanks for connecting him to his childhood memories of the Southern Illinois University Edwardsville related to astronomy. That's because he was listening to our April Fool's edition of the Jodcast where we had Pamela Gay from Astronomy Cast, who's also a professor at the Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And that helped him reconnect with his childhood that, he'd, that he says seemed so long ago. We also had an email from Ido from the Berket Observatory in Israel asking us to mention a live webcast they were doing, but unfortunately that happened at the end of August, so it's a bit too late for us to be mentioning on the September edition of the Jodcast. Sorry about that. We also had an email from Andrew Mowbray, who said that he'd heard mention on a podcast recently of practical alternatives to planispheres and charts for finding your way around the night sky, and was wondering what that was. Now, I think he's referring to Stellarium, which is a piece of open-source software that's free that we've mentioned a few times on the Jodcast. It really is excellent software, and we all find it very useful for finding our way around the night sky as well. We also had an email from John Faulkner, who sent us an email about meteor scatter radio reception. So he was listening in to the Perseid meteor shower, by listening to reflected FM broadcasts being reflected from the trail of a meteor as it went through the atmosphere. And he said he's looking forward to the Leonids later on in the year. And also thanks to John Edge and Eric Mustardi for their emails as well. So, over to iTunes, Neil. Okay, so we've got a, a couple of, uh, a few good reviews from the uh, iTunes. Uh, one here from John Manifold, the iTunes UK store. Um, Thanks for outstandingly high-quality interviews and great presenters. He also mentions that he misses Rick, Rick, Nick Rattenbury a little. Um, however, you will be able to catch up with Nick uh, at the November Live edition. Well, so, hopefully he will be doing our interview. Exactly, yes. Um, also thanks to Gary Brannigan and Ibor as well. And if you want to review us on iTunes, then please do go along to the iTunes store if you have it and give us a review. 
We like to get reviews via iTunes, and it certainly helps for other people to be able to find us as well. Over on the forum, Jamex says that Microsoft has purchased the rights to the Feynman lectures, and they've set up a cool website to gift them to the world. So there is a link in the forum. Um, go and follow that link and have a have a look at those lectures. Definitely informative, yeah. And if you want to get in touch with us, there we have several different ways that you can send us your feedback. You can go to the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Facebook via jodcast.net slash Facebook. We're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And YouTube on youtube.com slash jodcast. And of course, you can always send us feedback via our website at jodcast.net. And that brings us to the end of the show. So it just leaves us to say thank you to Professor Rod Davis from Jodwell Bank. In the intro and outro, Henry Jones Sr. was played by Ashwath Ganeshan. Marcus Brody was by David Alt. The Terminator was Bruce Busby. And Sarah Connor was Gwendolyn Jensen Woodard. Until next time, jod on. Swearable. Well, that's extremely enlightening, but... Great heavens! Self-preservation mode off. Readjusting teleport settings. Your teleport is malfunctioning. Operating parameters do not include ice. Are you John Connor? Me? No. John Connor is not here. You must come with me. For an educator 101, you are inefficient. He won't be back. You are saying something about aliens. Uh, yes. Uh, yes, never mind. Um, how about this specimen? It, it, it appears to be an advanced form of mummification. The hands pushed out of the coffin material suggest it was not done willingly, it's true. What material is this precisely? Well, uh, the boys at the lab say that it's something called carbonite. Never heard of that either. I hate to say this, Henry, but... It looks like Junior. You don't fancy a drink, do you? I thought you'd never ask.